get one more sip going. You ready to go? No, but here I am anyway. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to Millwood and Micah Discovering Avatar Season 2. My name is Amanda Millwood, and I'm a screenwriter, actor, director, and a fan of Legend of Korra. And my name is Todd Micah. I'm the author of the Grimguard book series, and I had never watched Legend of Korra until now. If you've been following along with our podcast, then you know that we cover two episodes of the show every podcast episode, and today we arrive at Korra Season 3, Episode 9, The Stakeout. Uh, this episode was written by Michael Dante DiMartino. <laughs> I was just mentioning I was just mentioning you before we started recording that as soon as this episode ended and I saw Michael Dante DiMartino's writing credit at the end, I was like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and I, I that was like I told you, that was immediately what I thought when I saw the credit. I was like, I know Todd's gonna bring this up. <laughs> just like he's gonna he's gonna make a joke out of it. But it was interesting because I I was trying to remember, like, think back to Avatar and even earlier seasons of Legend of Korra, if, because we always see Michael Dante DiMartino mm -hmm. as, you know, writing credits. Like, he's had many episodes that he solely has written, but his partner in crime, Brian Konitzko, I don't believe that he has written any singular episode like Michael has um, just by himself for Legend of Korra or even Avatar, uh, it, which is interesting yeah with a with a quick search over here looking through the episode list um both for avatar and cora uh no there's plenty of episodes that it's just michael writing on but <laughs> brian is not a solo act he <laughs> wherever he is michael is right next to him you know it's kind of interesting because as someone that has you know researched the hell out of both avatar and legend Korra, i've seen all the interviews all the behind the scenes you know, these two are always together when talking about the shows because they, you know, birth the shows basically. Right. But it seems to me just from watching those interviews that Brian Konitzko is the idea and planning guy. Like he's the one that thought of the, you know, idea for Avatar and he pulled Michael in to help him to like, you know, create the show. But he was the one that had the initial idea and it kind of oversees all aspects from the animation to the writing but he doesn't really? himself do this if that makes he's like the producer of the show as opposed to like a writer yeah. director you know right 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 he's the idea guy the concept guy when and michael makes it happen right exactly which is interesting but um yeah so anyway it's a really long <laughs> tangent but yeah yeah well, well it is interesting because you know that again we've seen so many episodes of him kind of like you know, we keep alternating uh, between Joshua Hamilton and Tim Hedrick for the writing credit, mm -hmm. and then every once in a while, Michael's like, "All right, you guys can take the week off. I, I got it. I got it this time." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." We're this episode has heavy exposition. I got you. I got you guys. <laughs> and Tim's like, "But wait, don't doesn't it happen in Bossing Say?" And he's like, "No, no, not this episode. No go. We have the day off." He's like, "Okay." Right. <laughs> That's so funny. Or Tim. Tim just wants to like, to make like a whole series about Bossing Say. <laughs> he does. He should be. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised because we all know that the next show is going to be an Earth Kingdom mm -hmm. Avatar. I would bet my. I would bet the farm that I don't have that <laughs> Tim Hedrick is going to be one of the lead writers for that. Like I, cause he's, I mean, he's worked with these guys forever. Like that would be awesome. be the lead writer for, you know, an earth bending avatar series. Like he would just lose it. I'm sure. 
and good for him. He deserves it. <laughs> I would. I, I. I have this like pet thought of mine that Tim just is secretly is obsessed with the concept of bossing say. <laughs> Honestly. Like, like I think he lives at the corner of like Wall Street and and Secrets Avenue. I think he has three cats named Bossing and Say. Like, <laughs> he's fully brainwashed his, by the Dai Li his, to loving Bossing. His his firstborn child is named Dai Li <laughs> Hedrick. Oh my god! Like, I'd love to think that he's like a huge stand for his own concept. He's like, any minute now they're gonna walk in. He's like a telephone ring. He like he's like don't pick it up too fast, let it ring two or three times. And he just like, grabs it. He's like yes, <laughs> it's them calling Tim, him. <laughs> we want you, we want you to head the Earth Bending Avatar series. Tim, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> and when the world needed him most, he returned. <laughs> he's got like the bat foam instead of red. It's green. <laughs> oh my god, we've got on so long. We love you, Tim. Come back. We love We're you. We're on the very first credit. We have not moved fast. This is why. So this funny. is why we say before we start recording, it's only got to be like a forty-five minute episode today. We're probably not going to go on any tangents. What is there to talk about for an hour and a half? Nothing. <laughs> oh, just wait. Um, the uh, the episode is written. Uh, episode nine, the stakeout. In case you forgot. <laughs> yes. It's directed by Ian Graham, animated beautifully by our good friends over at Studio Mir. The episode aired August 1st, 2014, and the IMDb rating of The Stakeout is an impressive 8.7 out of 10. Take us away with those fun facts, Amanda. All righty. Uh, for our first fun fact, one of the storyboard artists for Mako and Bolin's fight with Mingwa and Gazan was Yu Young Ki, an animation director for Avatar The Last Airbender's unaired pilot episode. And I oh. talked about that way back when we first, literally the first podcast episode when we did, you know, the first two episodes of Avatar, how there was an unaired pilot episode that can be watched and, you know, dissected on YouTube. And I've watched it many times. It's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wasn't meant to be aired, obviously. It was just a sort of, you know, this is what we could do, but we could do it even better if you actually gave us like a budget. Um, but it's mm -hmm. cool that they were able to bring back, you know, an animator or the animation director, I should say, from the unaired pilot to work on this fight. It's pretty awesome. Um, was there any particular reason why they brought him in? What, like, did he not work on the rest of the series and this? I mean, apparently it was notable enough in this episode that it's a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, I honestly have no idea. You know, I, maybe this is just a theory, but the one good thing about the unaired pilot was the action, which a lot of the action was taken from the unaired pilot and put into the actual show because it was actually mm -hmm. pretty good. Um, so since this was a fight scene that he specifically worked on, maybe that's why, because, you know, he did a good job with the fight scenes in the unaired pilot and they might have just called him up and been like, hey, would you mind doing this fight scene? You know, maybe the animators were tired or something. I don't know. One of our storyboard um, artists is out sick. Can you come in? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and for our second fun fact, Korra's appearance while muzzled and restrained in a straitjacket resembles Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, that was literally so obvious. Like, it was the first thing I thought of when I saw that ending scene. I was like, oh, damn, are they going full Hannibal Lecter here? Like, what? She's like, hello, Asami. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I ate his bear. 
I ate his bear with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Not Bosco. Uh, anyway. Um, and then the third and final fun fact is that Cora's jester towards the tav or sorry, the tavern patrons recalls a similar jester made by Katara and Sokka in the blind bandit. The I saw water it. Tribe. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it. I was like, is that a water tribe reference? <laughs> Got my eye on you, water tribe. <laughs> Love that. It um, also was a good throwback, by the way, to what was it, the first or second episode of Korra yeah, where she Lynn. gets arrested and she's like <laughs> yeah, she throws back Lynn's symbol there. Great. <laughs> the great moment of Lynn just like, what? What does that mean? It's <laughs> so funny. All right. So, yes, the stakeout. What did you think of this episode, Mr. Micah? You know, interesting episode because I feel like they really slowed down the pacing to do this. Mm hmm. You know, we we had them in a, a situation where it was, we were kind of back to the good old police investigation, you know, yes. Mako pacing um, that we had a lot of in uh, in season two. And, and I got to tell you, on that note, I really feel like a lot of this episode reached back. And I'm sure it's because of Michael Dante DiMartino and the whole effort in season three to sort of redeem themselves after season two to right. to kind of reach back to season two and this episode had a I don't mean this in a bad way but it had a kind of a season two feel to it it was it was a lot of Mako investigation it was you know exposition about things connecting and maybe it was just the fact that they also sprinkled in mentions of Unalak and Vatu mm -hmm. that also sort of gave me that feeling it was the presence of spirits like very heavy in the episode um and the fact they literally go back to the spirit world Right. So, I mean, everything in this episode kind of reached back and co-joined seasons two and three together a little bit less like an apology and like a, look, there was significance to all of that. And look, <laughs> it's almost like we had a bigger plan when we made it, you know? Totally. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> definitely, definitely did. Would I lie? <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, one of the things that is sort of like a sort of like a first half of the episode thing is the whole you know sneaking around in the city and then they figure out where um um why am i forgetting his name also the way guy i way i way um i have to remember it by saying it's i way or the highway that's the only <laughs> way i remember it whatever works for you <laughs> that's how i remembered it last time when we, we actually saw the guy um but you know they they find him they find him in the city and it becomes a scene that I actually really, really liked, which is the namesake of the episode, the actual stakeout mm -hmm. that kind of doesn't come to fruition because the end court just runs up and kicks the door in any way. <laughs> of course. In court but, the stake, but the stakeout is such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting scene because Bolin immediately when the stakeout begins on earth's, the board game the avatar famous board game yes by show and i do love that well this is something that i love about this episode in general but i do love that we kind of just see our heroes hanging out like obviously they're on a mission but it's not a very like 
fun, like action heavy missions. So it gives them time to just kind of breathe and just be around each other and hang out. And mm -hmm. I love that him and Asami, Bolin and Asami, um, you know, decide that they want to play Pai Show because there's nothing else to do. They're just kind of sitting in a hotel room waiting in a cramped area. Like, and uh, I, I do love that. And, you know, obviously, like you were saying with the nostalgia, reaching back to things that Avatar fans are familiar with. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a cute, it's not like two doesn't beat you over the head with it. Like it. No, but no. It, what is cool about it though, is that they expound a little bit about Pai Show um, in, in order to draw a contrast between the characters, they show a right. contrast of bold. And this is like a beautiful bit of character development of how to put some exposition out about your characters without some either a submitting them to trauma or b having them just lore dump about their life right and so what you do instead is you create a cool metaphor where Bolin is like oh how long is the stakeout gonna take it's so boring and then of course asami is a much cooler calmer head even though she isn't the one intensely staring out the window with right. <laughs> mako and Korra energy right and, and she gets in that little argument, that little disagreement with Bolin, where Bolin's like, it's a game of chance. It's supposed to be fast paced. And she's like, mm -hmm. no, it's a game of strategy and it has to be done slowly. And the fact of the matter is that both of them are right. That Pi, that Pi Show actually is based on variations of the game. It can be either a fast paced game of chance, or it can be a patient, slow strategy game. And I think yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's kind of cool because when we were, you know, in the very few times that we saw Pai Show being played in Avatar, it was more of the slow chess-like methodical, you know, uh, game. But that just shows how things evolve and how things change over time that, you know, you can take a game like that and suddenly make this fast paced, high energy, like, you know, game of chance and, you know, that a gang would play. <laughs> So it kind of, you know, bastardizes it in a way, but in, in a cool way. <laughs> so it's I, like, I loved Bolin's comment immediately where it's like, Cora, you're the avatar. You have to make standardized to rules for Pai Show. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Whatever you get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is very, very cute just to see them playing. Um, and, <laughs> and I love that Mako, you know, as we said, Mako and Korra are on like guard patrol duty the whole time. They're, you know, focused on the mission of the stakeout. And that Mako has a stupid little logbook. <laughs> He's just logging like a like a proper policeman. He's writing down every little, you know, every time that he looks out the window, every time he leaves, every time he comes back. Like <laughs> it's a uh, it's I, very funny. I I also <laughs> I also just you saying the stakeout there reminded me uh, just in full full transparency for some reason when I was going to say the name of the episode during the podcast I almost said the steakhouse I think that would have been for sure Sokka would have loved that right. <laughs> episode Neither 9 the steakhouse yes. <laughs> Bolin wouldn't have been bored either that's for sure no no um and another part of the actual stakeout that I love is when, uh, you know, because we've got the whole crew with, with us in this episode, but in the beginning, they initially split up and Mako and Bolin go off to the town to follow Ai Wei while, you know, Korra and Asami stay behind trying to find clues. Mm -hmm. And they do the whole disguise bit from <laughs> season one of Avatar. Remember in The Deserter when they're trying to like, you know, blend into the Fire Nation town? <laughs> mm -hmm. And he just pulls his shirt over <laughs> 
head, like a grim one. Yep. It just reminded me of that so much. Um, and I love that Bolin already had like a backstory ready to go. He truly is an, an artist, an actor. Like, Yeah, he's he, great. He's had this in his back pocket since the days of Nuck Duck. Like, <laughs> but... And I love that the whole Nuck Duck thing, they're continuing to do that because, you know, that that's a big, again, a big bit of follow through from season two i'm glad that that's not something that they like went oh okay yeah sure just kind of forgot about and just forget about it and just brush it off no they keep they keep doing it they keep harking back to it um you know it even is their ticket into the hotel mm-hmm. yeah and that's i mean that's a good way to tie in season two like that's a that's a clever way to bring stuff from season two back into you know the story of season three um without it feeling forced or just bad like lazy mm-hmm um which speaking of which <laughs> i guess i feel like we talked enough about the actual stakeout because there's not like a ton to talk about with it but it is mm-hmm. cute to see them all together working you know doing some i just work. like just like the scene i think it's such a very thoughtful scene without being heavy-handed i think it's well written so oh, yeah for sure points for that big points for that so let's get to the middle of the episode which for me is the it's not bad but it's the worst part of the episode for me. And that is actually when they figure out that Iway, he hasn't left the hotel that he's been staying in the whole time that they've been watching him. And Cora busts down the door, like I said, in Cora fashion. Um, she's no respect for doors, that girl. She and comes in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> literally every time. Um, but uh, yeah, so she goes into his room and she finds him meditating and she figures out very quickly that, oh, you know, the place that he's meeting with Zaheer Jaibao's Grove is not in the physical world, it's in the spirit world. So she meditates, goes into the spirit world to, you know, figure out what's going on. And then Iway is, you know, confronted by Zaheer, who immediately throws him into the pit of lost souls. Um, or sorry, not the pit, the fog of lost souls. There we go. Yeah. Um, and then Cora basically gives herself up and they have a conversation. And initially, when I was first watching this, I was like, oh. I like this because I like that they're kind of on equal ground here. They don't have their bending. There's no reason that he shouldn't talk to her, like, you know, give her information. Cause what is she going to do? Like, um, so I really liked initially that they were just going to have a conversation, like totally civil, just, you know, her asking questions and him answering, but rewatching it now, knowing what I know, I'm like, Hmm. I don't know about this, <laughs> like story wise. <laughs> um, I don't know. You you tell me your thoughts, and then I'll. No, I'll no. I, I want to hear. No, I want to hear yours. Oh, you want to hear me? I find <laughs> it's funny that you have a gripe about it, so I'm actually super interested. It's. I don't know. I don't think it's so much the writing. Well, it's a little bit the writing. In terms of the writing, I do not like that it's revealed that Unalak was part of the Red Lotus. That to me is very lazy. <laughs> um while it's like a i guess it's a twist of sorts it doesn't make a lot of sense and i think that they knew that because they literally had cora ask a question that anybody that watched season two would be like but wait if he was in on this with them why is he not in jail too (laughs) so it's like it didn't feel necessary and the fact that like him turning into a dark avatar wasn't even part of the plan it's like then why is he even in this group it's just stupid it's a way that's a sloppy way to call back to season two. You know, mm-hmm. the whole nuck talk and all that, that's a good, clever way yeah. to bring that in. But 
you know, hearkening back to Unalak and having him suddenly be a part of this Red Lotus group that tried to, you know, kidnap Korra as a kid, that is stupid. And I'm sorry, I don't like it. Um, I don't know if it was just a retroactive way to make him seem like more of a threat or a better character. Try to make him more relevant because yeah, he like didn't it matter before. Yeah, <laughs> it really doesn't. And it just makes it worse and it makes, you know, it raises more questions than it answers. So I'm just like, eh, don't like that. Um, but yeah, like unless they're, intent- unless they're intended to go break Vatu out again, it's almost just like a throwaway line oh, of absolutely. sort of like, oh yeah, where she's like, you were intending to release Vatu, and it's almost like Sahir's just like, yeah, and that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the other thing, is that like, I don't know. Again, when I first watched this, I was a teenager, so I didn't think much about the dialogue or you know the story or anything. I was just enjoying it. Um, uh, back when you were but, young and foolish <laughs> right oh sweet summer child but now <laughs> listening to uh zahir's plan and, and basically him talking to core and explaining everything i'm like yeah this is where i honestly think i started to lose interest in him. not that he's again i have said literally from the beginning of season three when we first started that zahir is like everybody's favorite mm-hmm. legend of Korra villain and I've always said that Mon is my favorite. Like, mm-hmm. and this is where it's like he overtakes it here because I don't like the idea of having an anarchist as a like main villain because it's so boy outside of the Joker. That is the only one. And even then I have my limits with that character, mm-hmm. but it's, I don't know. There's something about the anarchist chaos characters that if they're the villain, like if they're here for chaos and they're supposed to be like comic relief or they're just, you know, fun side characters, great, whatever. Mm-hmm. But for them to be your main threat, it just, it doesn't work for me for some reason. I don't know if it's the way that it's written in this show or if it's just the whole idea in general, <laughs> but, or maybe both. I don't yeah, know. Here's Here's the thing about it. So first of all, I agree with you. And, mm. But from this perspective, here was me coming into the episode with different thoughts because I hadn't seen it before and kind right. of the same takeaway. I was expecting there to be <laughs> literally any other reason why they were trying to capture the Avatar other than, yeah, we just want like to watch the world burn and the avatar should be on our side and she's like okay well i get that but like you failed to brainwash me into being that as a child so why aren't you trying to kill me now what are you going to capture me what are you going to do with me and they're just like oh you'll see (laughs) and he's just like (laughs) i think and she's like (laughs) it doesn't back at him and it just kind of seemed really hollow I was hoping for there to be some sort of personal stake. Kind of like how kind of like how at least with Amon there was a revenge story, a personal story, a family story. And right. that's what makes a lot of strong villains strong. Because when their goals are like political, when their goals are too big, you kind of can't wrap their your mind around how like one person all by themselves or four people by themselves actually intend to do it. 
Right. Because when you really breaks when you really break it down, their plan and a plan like this is kind of stupid. <laughs> it it isn't. It is in fact kind of stupid. Here's how. Let let me let me tell you that I will elaborate much more on it in the next episode when they actually mm-hmm. execute the plan. But for now, let me just say that the the villain's stakes the more personal they are the more relatable they are because take take somebody who is is praised as being a great villain for example thanos thanos from marvel and he is his plan is debated many many times and from many many aspects of you know everything from is he really truly a madman or are his is he actually looking out for people's well-being all the way to well the the actual plan itself is dumb because instead of having the lives why don't you just double the resources like that right. kind of debate but the thing about Thanos that makes his grand universe spanning plan so powerful is that number 1 it it isn't it's a very practical goal. This isn't like some lofty ideal. This is literally people will starve if there's overpopulation, so we're going to do this. And secondly of all, he has a personal stake in it. His family is involved. He has personal feelings. He has personal sacrifice involved mm-hmm. with this. And and it's not just this weird political, I believe the world is better without kings and queens and, and governments. So right. let's kill all the rulers so that government doesn't exist anymore. It's like, and then what, smart guy? It's like, and then I don't know, chaos. but chaos. <laughs> it's like, oh, you have a really good plan. At least Thanos had a retirement plan. Zaheer is like, I don't know. I'll just enjoy it, I guess. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It is just so lofty. And because, well... And like I said, we'll get more into it in the next episode. But because apart from really only Zuko, um, you know, well, he's not the Fire Lord currently. His daughter is. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, apart from him, we don't like any of the leaders of the political world. We don't like the Earth Queen. We don't like the president of Republic City. You know, we don't like, or well, he's not there anymore, but we didn't like Unalog. So, like, why not take him out? <laughs> Well, see, and see, and that I feel like is a little bit of like, mm, I feel like it's a very ham-fisted way to try to create sympathy for the villain and and tap into that chaotic part of us that goes Mm -hmm. like you said, they're all terrible people. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, but that's very anecdotal to be like, (laughs) yeah, you've met exactly three terrible people. And now you're like, all, all, (laughs) all government rulers have to die. It's like, (laughs) oh, that's awfully dramatic. But, but, but at least Amon's plan was literally, look, everything is terrible because of benders. And Mm -hmm. literally every person can be like, yeah, actually everything is really terrible (laughs) because of benders. And we have a hundred year war to explain to us why it was so bad like no, no. history <laughs> yeah history literally attests that benders cause a loss a lot of problems right. Cora even caused nothing but problems yes. in these two episodes and that's exactly why i feel like even though you know removing the bending of all benders that's a pretty lofty ideal in and of itself but at least there is a base of truth in what he's trying to accomplish and why he's doing what he's doing like you know it may 
you know, the whole revolution, you know, behind Mon might have been built on a lie because, you know, as we know, he himself was a bender, but at least he was trying to do some good, obviously just in a very bad way. And he was trying to take, you know, not the law, but you know what I mean? Like he's trying to be the savior of the non-bending people. Right. And you understand why, because everything he said about benders is true. Right. Um, but you know, with, with the Red Lotus, it's like, yeah, they're really cool and they're very formidable villains, but their ultimate plan is just kind of weak. <laughs> well, they, they, the fact that they don't really have any sort of organization behind them, it's just the four of them. And mm -hmm. so it's not even like a Mons revolution. Yeah, sure, they're allowing chaos to run in the streets, but they're not organizing anything. They have no army to do anything. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, technically, all you need to do to foil their plan is just literally pack all the characters who have plot armor, like, around their next target, and that's it. Their plan doesn't work. They don't have a bigger, better plan. They have no one else backing them up if these four people, who admittedly, the only way they even escaped, uh, I forget the name of the metal city. Zaofu. Kazunai. But, like, <laughs> I, uh, where they couldn't get out of there... Except with, ta-da, magic puff of smoke, and we're gone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, plot armor, baby. Yeah. Yeah, like, other than that, if you just corner four individuals, their entire plan goes up in smoke. Literally, not just them, the whole plan. Right. Yeah, and I'm curious, because, like, obviously, I know what's what is happening for the rest of, you know, the season and going forward. Um, but I'm mm -hmm. curious if your opinion will change because honestly i think that it kind of soured for me <laughs> like and i'm not saying that the finale the finale is fantastic it's it's probably the best finale in all mm -hmm. of legend of Korra. but um just in terms of like the overall plan and where, how we get to that point i'm like uh, uh, i feel like it could have done that a little better the the finale of season three or the yes, finale yes, of season Korra? three finale I mean, just like with season three in general, which is considered the best season out of the show, the finale is also the best finale out of Legend of Korra, in my opinion, and in many others. Um, it is quite okay. fantastic. But like I said, how we get to that finale is, and how the plan kind of unfolds, I'm like, I feel like you guys could have gone about this a different way or just completely rewritten the whole plan and motive of the Red Lotus. Like, I don't know. But anyway, so... <laughs> well, there was thing that well, let's get that's an interesting statement because you know the how do I say this? The Red Lotus is an amazing mm -hmm. concept that they're an offshoot of the White Lotus um, that rebelled. I mean, kind of like uh, it, at least one. I don't know if it's still canon, but like an origin of the Sith in relation to the Jedi that they're just people among the Jedi who thought differently thought, yeah, the way the path we're on, this isn't the way we should use mm -hmm. the dark side to do stuff. And like the Jedi in their mercy, instead of being like, oh yeah, heretics, let's kill you. We're like, you know what? We're going to exile you off to some little planet all by yourselves where you can go do your little dark side thing. And like, just don't bother anybody ever again. Because that yeah. always works. <laughs> mercy is for the weak. <laughs> and, in, and in retrospect, it's kind of interesting that the White Lotus took that similar pass with the Red Lotus, that they didn't execute these actual anarchists. They instead just decided to chain them up. 
like it's not like they're like immortal greek gods that can never be killed and so they must only be imprisoned like there's something very mythology about the way that they're yeah. bound in ways that their environment is starved of their element it's like imprisoning poseidon in the right. desert you know what i mean yeah. you know but like yeah it's just weird they didn't decide well, to kill them and i think again you're absolutely right but i think that the only reason that they give as to why they didn't just off them all is because they wanted to know why they tried to kidnap the avatar why they tried to kidnap Korra when she was a kid um and they were interrogating them for those 13 years that they were all imprisoned and they never spoke they never you know gave that information and zuko's there just like trying to interrogate them and torture them and just like why did you want to kidnap the avatar and zahir just looks at him, he's like wouldn't you like to know fireboy <laughs> like fire <laughs> yep uh that that is canon um <laughs> but uh yeah so i mean kind of a weak excuse especially when you know what their ultimate plan is by the end you're like okay, now they should have just killed them. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter why they tried to kidnap Korra. As we see in this episode, it's just like, they just wanted to make her a bad guy. Okay? <laughs> like because, because we felt like well, it. Okay. Well, actually, no. I'm not going to say that because that might give away the ending. Um, <laughs> glad I caught, glad I caught oh, okay. myself. Well don't, well, don't do that. But let's just say, when we get to the finale, I'll explain what I was just about to say and, you know, why, what I think they should have told Korra you know, when she asked, why did you try to kidnap me as a kid? There is another thing that they should have done instead. Yeah. But not. anyway, um, so, so mm. yeah, we, well, the, well, the episode, the episode pretty much, um, it wraps in a very surprising way for me. I certainly didn't see this one coming. Well, because, um, while when the Red Lotus comes to kidnap, Cora and take her away because she, you know, her location is given away entirely because they found Iway oh. and they knew where Iway was. And since they're with Iway, now they know where Cora is, which yeah. is very cool, very smart. Um, they send the two members of the Red Lotus, uh, they send Mingwa and Kazan to fight uh, Mako and Bolin over the body mm. of Cora. Um, and in the meantime, Asami and Cora take off. Uh, naga out of the city and then they mm -hmm. get trapped and at very first it really got me they really did get me that i'm like oh no because i'm caught them <laughs> and technically it would work because he's an earthbender even though he he bends mostly lava he is still an earthbender it's like he can't mm. bend earth but then when they're captured and i am literally like oh no the red lotus got them they're like yeah the earth queen's army caught us and i'm like okay wait what <laughs> like i entirely forgot that she was after them but then i'm like oh yeah that's right the whole like wanted poster mm -hmm. thing and like yeah that makes sense <laughs> yeah it, it was a really good fake out it got me when i first watched it too um but uh yeah, I don't. Okay, we'll get to the fight in a minute because it is a really cool fight. But I just want to say that when Cora wakes up and she's in all, you know, her Hannibal Lecter get up and she asks the zombie mm -hmm. who's also chained up on the ship with her, you know, she's like, Where are the Red Lotus? And Asami just like, she looks like she's been passed out and she comes to and she says, who are the Red Lotus? And first, I don't know why, because she wouldn't have known what who the Red Lotus was. Cora literally just found out 
Did you think she had amnesia? I swear to God, I did. I don't know if it was the way she said the line. Because, like, obviously she immediately followed it up with, like, we're not, you know, they didn't capture us. The queen captured us. And so just for a split second, I was like, oh, my God. Did, like, Asami get hit in the head with some rocks and she, like, doesn't know who Korra is or something? I don't know why. I was crazy. And I, it, I had that same feeling the first time I watched it. And just now, I forgot about it. And then right as it happened, I was like, oh, I remember thinking that she had amnesia. That's so weird. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh, man. But what, hap- what happens when you combine nostalgia and amnesia? That moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's got to be the fact that she's like. Like disheveled. Uh, and like, what? Yeah. Like, the bit, like just coming to like that makes it sound like she's groggy and like like who, like a sort of a who yeah. are you? Where are imagine? we? What's <laughs> going on? If Cora had to yeah. explain who she was, and like, yeah, I can bend all four elements. I'm the Avatar. <laughs> She'd be terrified. Um, but... what? She she forgets. She just forgets she's in the Avatar yeah. world. Like, holy shit, she forgets bending? how everything works. She forgets everything. <laughs> <laughs> Am I a cartoon? <laughs> bending. Dang. Exactly. Been... What are you talking yeah, about? No, we've already had our amnesia unneeded amnesia trip from season two so we don't need any more um oh no what if it was just like cora what if she forgot that she and mako got back together God, no, please. <laughs> oh, she spends the whole rest of the time broken up with mako and cora's like could i oh, no, use this God. no more drama please um but uh, anyway, so yeah, before all that happens, there's a really cool fight scene, um, like you said, between Mako Bolin, Mingwa, and Gazan. And I love the line that Bolin says when he's fighting Gazan. He's like, I can't beat this guy. It's like I'm giving him ammo. What a trade. <laughs> <laughs> like Mako's trying to take on Mingwa and losing horribly. But, you know, he put up a good fight. Um, we knew the and- whole thing was over when Bolin jumps into the water. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're done. yeah Mingwa's gonna get your ass um yeah no but the fight's very beautifully uh realized you know it's at nighttime so the lava bending looks really cool as it's like illuminating the water and you know the buildings Mm -hmm. and everything like I really do love how they animate lava bending I haven't said that yet but it's like I'm not I like it as an idea I think it's kind of OP like it's very much like blood bending where I'm like yeah if you push this too far, this could like this is like not possible within this world. But yeah, you know, they they never do push it too far. I don't feel like. Um, I feel like good. there's a reason why when people play rock paper scissors, why lava isn't the fourth option. Yeah, that that would take them a lot. That that alone <laughs> ought to explain. Like, if you could play rock paper scissors and make whatever you're trying to be, like, is this overpowered? If I made it the fourth thing, yeah, yeah, it is. They're actually fun fact about um, rock paper scissors within the Avatar world. That actually is a thing. Um, there are these chibi shorts from Avatar that they would air on Nickelodeon. You know, right before an episode or whatever. Mm. They're only like five minutes long, and there actually is a chibi short called Bending Battles, I believe where they're playing like their version of rock paper scissors but it's with the bending so you know water earth iron and like <laughs> and then Sokka comes in with boomerang <laughs> and he beats Oh my gosh, us. I would love that. Well, of yeah. course boomerang is more overpowered than lava <laughs> lightning or anything. So Exactly. Boomerang can take out combustion man, he can take out anybody. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but uh yeah, so it's very fun. Um 
And then, of course, you know, they, Mako and Bolin get totally, just completely KO'd. And uh, they get captured by Ming Wong Gazan. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the end of the episode is, you know, Korra and Asami being captured by the uh, Earth Queen. So yeah, overall, I mean, it's so funny because the first half of the episode is very slow paced, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. It's just, no. you know, compared to the second half, which is so high energy, so, you know, intense mm-hmm. because we're having fight scenes, we're getting captured. Like, you know, it's it's very interesting, the two different halves of the episode. And then in the middle, you've got the exposition um, with the here in the Red Lotus. So, you know, unless there was anything else that you wanted to say, do you want to get to the ratings? Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm gonna, I might shock you with this one, but I don't know. Here's my hot take with this episode. I mentioned it, and I was real subtle about the way I said it. <laughs> but I said that the the stakeout scene was like the best scene of the episode for me. It really right. was the best scene of the episode for me. I liked the like thoughtful exposition. The fight scene was cool, but I was like, eh, okay, we've seen the White Lotus fighting, or the Red Lotus fighting before. We've seen Mako and Bullet get beaten a bunch of times before. <laughs> I And then the whole exposition with Zaheer to Korra was just a real head-scratcher, like, I doc- like we talked about. And so, like, the episode just kind of was a big, eh, okay for me. <laughs> and especially the exposition part, I, I actually caught myself yawning in the middle of, I felt like Drax when, like, Iron Man's trying to come <laughs> up with the point, and they're just like... Are you yawning? <laughs> I, are you yawning? Is it possible to yawn in the spirit world? Can I yawn in the spirit world? <laughs> right. Um, I have a little bit of a middling review, really, all things considered. I give this episode a much respect, but I give it a 7.7 out of 10. Wow, interesting. I'm not going to go as high as the uh, as the IMDb rating, um, personally. I think I'll give this one a solid 8 out of 10, because I, I agree with you. I think that, like, there are a lot of things holding this episode back from being, like, you know, an 8.5 or maybe even a 9 or more. Um, but I do really like the fight scene. I do like the cliffhanger ending. Um, I like all the stakeout stuff and the, you know, the, just the detective work. I always Mm -hmm. like seeing Mako pull out his detective stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the whole middle part of the episode just really drags it down for me, honestly. And it sucks because like I said, (laughs) I've been saying this since the beginning. Zaheer is like most, or uh, most Legend of Korra fans favorite villain. And it seems like this where he gets knocked down a couple pegs from me. Because while he is still a great villain, certainly leagues above, you know, someone like Unalak, like I think that the lack of deep motivation or plan is just it it really does kind of, you know, bring him down a couple points in my opinion as a villain. You, and just, you, you could you could say it kind of takes the air out of him. <laughs> yeah, it kind of takes the wind out of my sails. Hey. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so but overall, it was still a good episode. Um, so I'll give it an 8 out of 10. Very nice. Very nice. Well, this takes us to episode 10, Long Live the Queen. And as soon as the name of the episode was Long Live the Queen, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, she gonna die. <laughs> she oh, died in this one. Out. <laughs> Is she gone? Oh, she dead. Oh, she, she dead for sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. 
And of course, the other predictable part was in the end, the end of the last episode when they're like, they're taking us to Ba Sing Se. I was like, whoop, whoop, Tim Hedrick's writing the next one. Yep. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Uh, it's directed by Bell's Wire, animated by Studio Mir, and the episode aired August 8th, 2014. The IMDb rating of Long Live the Queen is a pretty darn impressive 8.9 out of 10. These aren't like nines, but these high eights, like, again, like you said, it kind of bears testimony that people do love season three. Yep, absolutely. Well, take us away with some of those fun facts, Amanda. (laughs) Yes. Um, For our first fun fact, this episode was leaked on August 7th, 2014. Yeah, 2014. The person who leaked the episode did so under the name Zahir for the People on his Tumblr page. His huh. message was his message to the fandom was the same message that Zahir makes to the citizens of Boston say in the episode. He did, however, change the words like Earth Queen to Nickelodeon. So he's an anarchist, apparently. <laughs> uh, Probably an inside man. Right. Imagine being um, such yeah. a disgruntled employee. It's like, you know how I'll get back at them? I'll leak this episode on the internet. Right. Because that's super original. Oh, yeah. Um, and then our second fun fact is the shot of Mako and Bolin's family reacting to the assassination of the Earth Queen went through some retakes, as in the initial depiction of the scene, they did not have a visible reaction to Zahir's address, which... Yeah, wouldn't make a lot of sense considering that they literally took time in the episode when we meet them to show mm-hmm. that the that the uh, the grandma, you know, grand grand specifically is like very in love with the queen. Like she's got the little shrine to her. She prayed to her, bowed to her. Like obviously, this woman is a huge fan of the Earth Queen, and to not have any reaction kind of seems like stupid. Like why wouldn't yeah. they? So I'm glad I- that they did rework it. And I mean, honestly, I was just happy to see once again that Mako and Bolin's grand grand is alive because we're all of very course. worried about her every episode. We pray for her. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, Grandma Yin's not going anywhere. Um, and then our third and final fun fact is that this is the first known instance of an airbender killing someone outside of the scope of self-defense. And yeah, boy, did this uh, really like... You know, say what you will about the hero, but no one saw that coming. Like the method and just the cruel ice coldness of the death scene of the Earth Queen was, yeah, that was not something that we had ever seen on a Nickelodeon show before. <laughs> we were all kind of like, holy shit. Yeah. No wonder I mean, this went online. <laughs> I mean, it, the scene sure took my breath away. <laughs> yeah, everybody and their mother made that joke. You're so original. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the funniest man alive. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, But actually, just real quick, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to say, and this is the reason I put this as the last fun fact. That was the last fun fact, by the way. Uh Um, The reason I put this one last is I don't think that this is true, actually, because (laughs) there if you look on YouTube, you can find I don't know what the name of the video is, but you can find clips of Aang and it starts with him saying like oh when he's talking to Avatar Yang Chen um, in the finale he's like I know oh, I've, this. I've only used airbending for self defense and I've certainly never used it to take a life <laughs> and then you just see a whole compilation of him doing exactly that 
It was just and straight murdering, like, everyone. Honestly. <laughs> and not only that, now, some people can say most of those killings were in self-defense. Fair. But there is one, and I even mentioned this way back when we did this episode of Avatar. Um, I believe it was the desert where um, Aang killed an animal out of just pure rage because yeah. he was so like distraught over losing Appa and all that. And he killed yeah. a buzzard wasp just because. <laughs> like, yeah. like, bro, you're the animal guy. You just killed an animal for no reason. Um but yeah, so I, I don't think that that's true. But also, on top of all that, um, you know, definitely Aang has killed people with his airbending. Um, I mean, I, think I, I can think of, I can think of another, I think the most heinous, actually most brutal murder that any, any airbender committed, which was when Tenzin took his shirt off. Yeah. That man was killing all the ladies. Like he slayed them. <laughs> he slew everyone, an entire oh town. I really thought you were about to be serious at first. <laughs> Who me? <laughs> Who me? Yes, but on top of that, this is just speculation. But I had talked to talk. Wow, I had talked to you about this. Suddenly, <laughs> um, Harley Quinn all of a sudden. Um, but I had talked to you about this before, not on the podcast, but just you know when we were talking and i heard now i don't know if this is true i hope it is because it sounds amazing but for everybody listening that didn't know i have heard that the opening scene of the netflix live action avatar the last airbender is actually uh fire lord sozin's attack on the air temples and so we will possibly get to see you know, the air nomads kicking some actual ass and killing off a bunch of soldiers, including Monkey Yatso, who, as we've said before, it is speculated that he killed that entire room of soldiers by sucking the air out and thus killing himself as well, um, which would be incredible to watch um, that unfold because it's only been speculation up to this point. But yeah, so I would think, I think it'd be really, really cool to see a full mass scale of airbenders because airbending is so OP. Like, yeah. there's a reason that they're pacifists, because if they weren't, they would be the Fire Nation. They'd be ruling everybody. Like, mm -hmm. how do you fight against something you can't see? Straight <laughs> and facts. Go off. Go off. Literally. This is why they made them pacifists, which is a very smart move. But it mm -hmm. will be really cool if it if the leak is true to see them actually fighting back against the firebenders, because they have to. Otherwise, they'll all be killed. And obviously, they are. But... Right. Um, yeah, so anyway, that was a really long tangent. I want to see that in the show. Please make it happen if it hasn't already. Me too. I'm going to be waiting for it the whole time when like, when it airs. I'm just going to like sit real quick and just like pray. Show me the destruction of the air temples <laughs> and the genocide of the air nomads. So messed up that we want to see that. But. Hey, you know what? We've been waiting so long, okay? Honestly, and, and it's something even, new. We've been waiting 20 years. <laughs> We've been waiting for the twelve years of it. Well, speaking of speaking of waiting for years, I loved Bolin being transported by the Red Lotus, and he oh, yeah. and he's literally just like, so you guys were locked away for like fifteen years, and he was like, actually, it was thirteen. He's like, man, what did you guys do this the entire time? He right? just starts talking to them just to hear their stories from prison. Striking up conversations as you do. Yeah, no, I absolutely that would be me. love. I related. Right? Honestly, no, it would be like 
why not? Like you're tied up, might as well make conversation and get to know them. And like, maybe you'll learn something that you can use against them. <laughs> like, yeah. but yeah, no, it's a, it's actually a very, very sweet scene of Volan just trying to like talk to them like they're normal people. <laughs> Cause I mean, they are, but like, you right. know, it is, it is fun when like, that's one of my favorite tropes in anything is when the hero and the villain just kind of like chat. They just have they a break, heart to heart. They, they break the ice. Right. It's not like it's not like in the previous episode where, you know, they're unfoiling a plan and like, you know, yeah. they're tense. No, they're just chatting. They're over tea, you know, <laughs> like that's yeah. the best. I love that shit. So, yeah, I just love like that. They're just like, hey, so we're not trying to kill each other in this moment. Like Cora's not here for us to defend. She's not here for you to try to capture. So, like, how you doing? How you sleep? <laughs> yeah, right. You sleep? You sleeping OK these days? <laughs> Are you seeing anybody? Is he cute? <laughs> like, yeah, no. It's, it's so funny. And I love that, like, Bolin guesses. Like, he he gets the idea from Mingwa, who says that during her time in the volcano, she would just, to pass the time, make up stories about the guards to keep herself entertained. And so Bolin wants to do the same thing with them, with Mingwa and Gazan. And he pitches the idea that Gazan was raised by an older sister had or his mustache grew when he was 13 and that he has an unspoken attraction to Mingwa. And Gazan just is like, two out of three, not bad. He doesn't <laughs> like, say which ones know. and I love it. I know. It's like, oh, he totally has a crush on Mingwa. Uh, but, <laughs> but I do want to know what the other one is. Uh, but mm. yeah, it's just and then of course Mako being the wet blanket, stop making it friends with the enemy. He's <laughs> like <laughs> yes. stop making friends with bad guys. Um but I love that because it, it would make sense that Bolin would be the one to do that. He's like the yeah. personable, you know, sweet guy that just wants to be friends with everyone. Marco's um, like, get back in character, Bolin. Right? <laughs> Don't forget that we're literally hostages. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's fun. And so we've got, and here's the thing about this episode that I really like, is that there are three different stories going on. And almost all of them get the proper amount of time. I feel like that's mm -hmm. really hard to balance that many stories and this many characters in one episode, but right. I feel like they do it pretty well for the most part. I do have one gripe, but um, so for our, you know, I guess that it's the main story um, or the a plot, which is Korra and Asami escaping from this airship, this earth kingdom airship that they're, you know, stuck on. And they end up getting caught with the crew in the desert, in the Siwang Desert. And so they can't use the ship because it's been eaten by a sea dragon monster thingy. Um, oh. And so they have to work together with the crew to build a sand skiff so that they can get out of the desert. And I then... would propose that the monster was, in fact, if you're, if you're familiar with the skit from 80s uh, Saturday Night Live, I think it's a land shark. Oh. I've never seen that skit. <laughs> there's, a, there's a knock at the door and everyone's like, wait a minute, who is it? And they're just like, it's it's always everything. It's like special delivery. And they're like, I don't have any deliveries. It's a Sunday. And then it's mm -hmm. like, Candy Graham. And it's like, oh, I can't. I'm on a diet. And finally, it's just like, it's something that gets their attention. And they're like, <laughs> land shark, <laughs> land shark. And you open the door <laughs> and it's a giant shark that just eats them when they open the door. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, it's land shark. <laughs> it's so stupid. I love it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And so, you know, it. I really like 
the plot, you know, that plot in particular, because A, it gives Asami something to do, which she hasn't really had at all in the entire show. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't have anything to do since season one. Honestly, yeah. Like, and it's really sad because like I've, I've said from the beginning, I really like Asami, but she feels like a waste of potential for her character. Um, but I do like that they gave her, you know, they brought in her mechanic skills, which have been there from the beginning, which is great right. that she actually gets to use them for once. Um, and that, you know, she, she's able to think on her toes and, you know, be a problem solver, which Cora, you know, we know Cora, she's a punch first, ask questions, never kind of girl. Yeah. Um, she doesn't think about her actions beyond <laughs> just the immediate moment, but that's why her and Asami balance out nicely. Right. Um, but, uh, yes. And then I really like in this was just like with uh, Avatar, how these crewmen on this Earth Kingdom ship, they could have so easily just been like pure bad guys, just working, you know, just crummy yep. the queen. Yeah. But no, they're like actual characters and like yep. they're normal people doing a job. And, it, you know, they're just stuck in the desert, just like, you know, Korra and Asami are. And they're trying to get out, too. So it's nice to see them kind of work together. I see. I think there's, I think there's a lot of value to that, too, because when they humanize the like henchmen mm -hmm. you kind of realize something that is important that they're trying to get across which is that the people of the kingdom aren't bad just like right. with the fire lord over the fire nation he's bad but that doesn't mean every single person who lives in the fire nation is some like mustache twirling monster who's gonna like beat up the avatar on sight you know right. They're not all horrible people with terrible morals. They, I mean, a bunch of them are. But in this, in this season in particular, they're making a big bid that, like, oh, these government leaders are corrupt. But, like, the people in the Earth Kingdom, despite the fact that they are ruled by a corrupt leader, they're not horrible people, just like you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's value. It lends credibility to their, their story that they're now embarking on. Like that this is the point of all of it, of the Red Lotus's goal. Um, I feel like it's a good way to sort of bolster the whole government leaders bad, people good, you know? Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I really love the captain character and how at the end of their journey, when they're able to get out of the desert, <laughs> he's just like, you know what? whatever the beef is between you and the earth queen it's above my pay grade he just kind of fucks off he's like yeah. you know what you you deal with it i'm not dealing with it i'm he's like, like honestly respect yeah he's like you know what the name of the show is legend of cora and my name ain't cora so i'm gonna go over there and let you Have deal with the earth queen <laughs> yes exactly, exactly. guys this is that. not our show exactly um and so yeah that's that's kind of the a plot the b plot is with Zaheer and the red lotus and you know not really infiltrating that's probably not the right word but just basically you know infiltrating the earth kingdom and meeting with the earth queen to try and get cora and that doesn't go as they plan so <laughs> like and then you i got still i still don't know the bargain they actually struck with her it was he had very big vibes of like qui-gon jinn swindling watto <laughs> over like well if we win if you win then you can keep all of the money and and the ship and the parts we need and everything and you can even keep your own slaves but if you <laughs> if you lose then you can keep the pod minus the cost of the money that we need to buy what we need need and then you win either way and he's like okay i really felt like it was like that i feel like so here came in he's like 
hey, so you want the Avatar? She's like, I already have the Avatar. It's like, yeah, but don't you want, like, all your airbenders back? And she's like, how are you going to do that? He's like, well, more on that in a minute. But first, here's some of the Avatar's friends. And he never really does circle back to how he's going to get the, the airbenders back. <laughs> He's just right. like, we'll talk about that after the after the Avatar shows up and then we take her. And she's like, okay. I'm like, wow, you just got fast-talked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. And I I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I literally just watched the episode. Um, the whole deal that they struck was that the Earth Queen claimed that she had Korra in her custody, which, I mean, she kind of did, but also not. Um and so Zaheer wanted to get Korra, obviously, and he knew the location of where all the Earthbenders, or not Earthbenders, sorry, the Airbenders were. Um, and so that's who the Queen is looking for. So he offered to trade her that information for Korra and just gave Mako and Bolan as like a sign of good faith or whatever. Right. Um, so like that to me is how I interpreted it, but again yeah like, the fact that the it was like i know where they sense. are but i'll tell you once you give me her it's like he couldn't say anything and then walk out with cora you know right. yeah <laughs> i think the he, queen yeah. is stupid yeah he could be like they're all in republic city just chilling at the police station thanks for the avatar bye it's just like right. i'm gonna no I'll, I'll i'll no i'm gonna take the avatar and sail away on my ship and then i'll shout the name back to you <laughs> <laughs> this is a good pirates reference <laughs> um, yeah no, and here's the thing i don't even think like maybe the earth queen isn't stupid because i don't think that she ever would have actually even if she had cora in her possession right then and there instead of in the desert i don't think she would have given her over like she would have heard oh, the yeah. information oh no and then yeah so either way the deal is stupid and nobody was going to keep their yeah. words so she's anyway. like a royal karen she would not go through with it she... no <laughs> um and then the the c plot is actually very fun. I love the C plot of Mako and Bolin are in prison, and uh -huh. you know they're me they're metal bars, which is interesting considering that like most people in the Earth Kingdom are Earthbenders. Yeah. And I'm not saying that because obviously we know that one in every hundred of Earthbenders right. is a metal bender, but you'd think that they wouldn't want to take that chance that they wouldn't have them be metal bars. Like I don't know, this seems like an oversight to me, but whatever. Um, it does lead to a very funny uh, scenario of Bolin trying twice and failing twice to open the bars from motivation from uh, Mako. Okay, so uh, I there I love the B and C plots on this because there's such like big plot holes on them. <laughs> and once again, I am so mad at my, at Mako. I'm like Mako, you can melt through the bars. Why didn't you melt through that little bitty latch? It's called a lock that's actually holding your door shut. Right. Why don't you try blowtorching that, smart guy? It's too much work. I know. He literally goes through the trouble of burning through one of the bars, which I was like screaming at him to do in the first place. But I'm just right. like, ugh. Or just like zap it, maybe like that could have broken. Well, he should, it. Or when the guard comes by and like taps the the, the stick on the thing, electrocute mm -hmm. the bars, like you said, and knock out the guards that can get the keys. Like, come on, man! I you know he's been running on like ninety six hours with no sleep. I guess I can forgive him. <laughs> right. I haven't it's seen him really sleep at all. <laughs> right. Um. But uh. Yeah. So because he obviously can't get through the bars with his fire bending. 
he keeps trying to get or motivate Bolin to use metal bending. And, you know, he's given like these motivational speeches twice. He does this. This is your moment. I, know. I thought you said yes. <laughs> like earlier was my moment. <laughs> no, uh, this is your moment. This is really your moment. Yeah. And it actually got me again. This was a, a nice subversion of my expectations because I was for sure thinking, okay, this is actually like, this is when it's going to happen. It's going to be revealed that he actually is an earthbender. He just needed the proper motivation and, you know, setting and all that, Um, you know, his life on the line. And no, actually he does not manage to metal bend the bars at all. And it's actually great. Like, I love that he is not a metal bender. Like it would have been so easy for that, for them to make that, but it would have been really lazy. Yeah, no, it would have been. Um, But, uh, Yes, but he thinks he does because all the doors open except for the <laughs> so funny. I love his reaction. Wow, it worked not for us, but it worked for everyone else. Like <laughs> yes. I opened all the doors. Um but sweet, sweet Bullen. Um, but uh yeah, and then it turns out no, that they were all the prisoners except for Mako and Bullen mm-hmm. were released by Zahir. Um, and that he has a message that he wants to give them for Korra. Right. And yeah, I just realized that we didn't even like talk about the actual assassination that led to that moment. Oh no, because um, I mean, yeah, because I mean we're gonna circle back to it now because yeah. <laughs> because I mean that that overall is like the, the plot of the episodes, but this is the central event, so it's only right that we're mm-hmm. like saving it for last to talk about, basically. <laughs> because because at this point, you know, so they realize at one point that the but, you know, Zaheer spies on the conversation that the Earth Queen is mm-hmm. having, the message she gets that the airship has been downed, and they're like, oh boy, we've watched this show enough times, we know that the Avatar is free now. And so, right. because they've read the script, they are like, we need to leave. And so <laughs> they don't leave before they take the opportunity, since they're there in the Earth Queen's presence, and they've already been like, yeah, we're going to kill all the government officials, to go in there and confront her and murder her. And Zaheer does so by literally giving the most breathtaking speech that he's ever given. It's actually not much of a speech. It's actually just taking the breath because that's exactly what he does. He sucks the air out of her lungs and she mm-hmm. dies. And I tell you, again, I already said it, but like this was truly shocking because this is before Invincible. This is before, you know, oh, yeah. all of these shows that now aren't afraid to go there. This show went there. <laughs> like yeah. on nickelodeon of all places <laughs> like yeah. yeah um and when i was first watching it happen first of all, i was just like in shock but also when he initially pulls the air out of her you know throat yeah. and out of her mouth i for some reason the, the way it was animated i thought he was literally gonna like wrap it around her neck and the choke, and choke her, her with, with her own air like that, i was like insanely shit. dark also does it make sense when you think about it but hey you know what we went to the spirit world in the last time and talked to giggling mushrooms things don't have to make sense right i was like oh my god is this happening and that didn't happen obviously but man i was i was convinced that that was gonna happen um but yeah it was it was really really shocking if you go and watch like you know youtube episode reactions mm-hmm. to that moment like right. people are just like wide-eyed like what's going on like this just used the- to be a kid's show well and see, i'm like it- was it though there was a suicide <laughs> homicide at the end of season one like 
you know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's always been kind of dark, but this is yeah, just a whole the, other level. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, the 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 incident is very shocking, and the impact of it, you know, as we sort of see the Red Lotus jump into action, as we see what they very much intend to perpetuate throughout all kingdoms they're going to assassinate the the leader and in the case of bossing say they go down and topple down the walls between the um what are they called again like the rings as the, yeah, rings the rings of, uh, yes they topple down the walls between well at least one of the rings anyway they melt one down mm-hmm. um and so they they do that but it kind of exposes a little problem in their plan to me which is that they're just like well we murdered the queen and now we go and i'm like you guys know that once you're gone they can just put somebody else on the throne like hmm. interesting like, that you should bring that up what like, yeah where's the big flaw in that plan <laughs> Right, so that like creates a power vacuum. It creates a power vacuum, and that's the stupid case. Because here's the that's that, and that is why I wanted to go and to monologue for a second about the hole mm-hmm. in the Red Lotus's plan, and why a plan that is lofty, too lofty in principle, falls apart in practicality, and that's why it doesn't seem as threatening. Sure, when they execute it, it's horrifying. Yes, like the the the, the death of the Earth Queen, very sad. Anyway, um, so <laughs> but when she dies, it, my very first thought is whether they're acting all high and mighty and they topple the wall, and I'm just like, you know that number one, the Dial E can rebuild that wall again, dude. It's not like they took a long time building it. They're Earthbenders for crying right. out loud. But number two, you kill somebody. It's like, oh no. All right, who's next? Because that's how monarchies work, and that's exactly how monarchy... I mean, any, any government is like that. You don't just kill one person, and, oh, oh no, the whole government's gone now. Like, where are these people from that they mm-hmm. think that that's how that happens? Number one, it creates a power vacuum. And number two, there's checks and balances, you know? Right. I mean, I mean, you go to Republic City and the president. I mean, if he was taken out, I'm sure there's all kinds of other people the vice president there's a line of succession how many people are they gonna just kill before they just realize oh yeah killing a person who's in a place of power doesn't eliminate the government structure and the place of power it just creates an opportunity for somebody else to fill the space like to an unlimited extent it's not about power it's about sending a message well because well because (laughs) at the end of the day you're, when you have something like anarchism and you say the villain's goal is anarchism, that's great. Sounds cool, except that they have, it's a war of ideas. Because in order for the anarchism to win, embodied by the villain, it has to be a war of thought. And that is why Amon is so much... This is this is all circling back to you. This is why Amon is a better villain. Because Amon didn't fight his war primarily with physical attacks. Mm-hmm. He used propaganda and fear and manipulation and deception and social movement to actually create change. Mm-hmm. And the change that he had meant that the government structure the power structure the idea that everybody in republic city subscribed to everybody in the world subscribed to could be unmade that's why it was so horrifying 
we saw it embodied in public opinion of the avatar changing and people mm -hmm. treating Korra differently and just the general sentiment toward benders in general changing and that's how you change the world is you introduce an idea but you don't just oh we four believe it and we're going to foisted right. on everyone else no no you have to get out there and actually put the message out there so that the message can propagate and so that the message can spread and people will join you and that's why there's an inherent weakness to the red lotus because they're like yeah it's just the four of us and we're going to change the world i'm like ha no <laughs> not going to happen so what you're saying is is that in our world aman would have been an influencer <laughs> correct correct he would have been twitter verified he would have been instagram famous like tiktok yeah. challenge yes exactly elon musk is aman in the real world yes yeah, yeah. no and that's and yes i agree with everything that you just said and i had a point i was gonna make to follow up with that and i am blanking so we'll come back to that well, I'm in all monologue a little bit more about it while you're oh, thinking Lord. about it. If it comes back to me, just immediately wave me off and I'll shut up. Gotcha. But but the thing is that Aman demonstrates that you can... Aman and Zahir are two different types of extremists of thought. The mm. difference is that Aman uses his charisma. And that Aman using his charisma gives him far more power because it rallies support to him. He's a, he's a cult leader is what he mm -hmm. is. And any person who gets out there into the public and creates a following, they're the people who have the real power because it's not just you. Again, it's the power of an idea. And Zahir right. doesn't understand that because he is so self-deluded almost into a sort of like, no one would help us sort of whereas aman is like well of course everybody would help us why wouldn't they it only works to their benefit where and he puts himself out in the limelight as the everyone i'm aman i'm a symbol i'm i stand up for you whereas zahir quite the opposite gets on the pa system to the whole city and says my name is not important mm -hmm. he takes himself out of it and when he does that he kill he's killing his own movement by leaving himself as some lone anonymous force with this sort of sanctimony that like oh i just want to enact change secretly in the background it's like you'll waste your entire life dude because you're not changing the world you're just killing people and saying it's the name <laughs> of a bigger idea it's just not people have died <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but zahir that kills people <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And oh, I remembered what I wanted to say, um, just kind of not so much branching off what you, you know, the whole monologue that you just had. But earlier when you said you notice something, I mean, it's not hard to notice, but the whole idea of, OK, you take out these leaders that leaves a power vacuum for someone possibly even worse to take over. And that actually was smart writing on the writer's part, because that's what happens in season four. <laughs> Uh, from the look in your eye when I said it, I had a feeling that's what you were you were intimating. But yes, and that's yeah. I mean, that's a good bit of writing where you know it is. If you know how that kind of stuff works, you know, taking out political powerful leaders doesn't change things. It doesn't you know end right. the dictatorship. It doesn't whatever. Um, it just leaves room for someone possibly even worse to fill that splot, that splot, spot. There that splot. Um, the way the government is nowadays, it is kind of a splot. 
Yes. Um, so I do love that. And I love that they kind of plant that idea this season only to, you know, fully right. thrive on Develop that idea it. in the next. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah. And here's my here's my nitpick with the whole, you know, taking over the government, not government, but, you know, just uh, what am I trying to say? Upsetting the established order. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you, Joker. Um, and the taking down of the bossing say wall is that I don't know. I feel like that is the one part of the episode where I would have liked more. Um, yeah. It feels too quick, too easy. Um, and not that it's done badly or anything. It's just like I feel like they could have ded dedicated even more time to the. They could have taken happened. sixty seconds away from welding the tail fin of the blimp in the desert and <laughs> right. devoted it to a little bit more of the overthrow of bossing, say, just to make it have a little more impact. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, but uh, other than that, I do like that Zahir. This is when I feel like Zahir is at his best as a villain. Is when yeah. he is normal. Uh, that might sound weird but when he is calmly talking to Cora like I like it when he says no we don't want to hurt this guy we're here to help him can you help me you know send out this message just all calm I'm like yeah I like this guy <laughs> like, it's mm -hmm. when he gets all like diabolical and like villainous that I'm like ah doesn't work for me not nearly as much as someone like Amon or even Varric honestly mm -hmm. um but, you know, I do like, like, for instance, earlier in the season when he was at the air temple and he was just talking with Iki, I believe it was, in uh, Tenzin's study. And like, he was just being normal. Like, obviously, we're creeped out because we know he's right. the bad guy, but she doesn't right. and she doesn't suspect anything because she's a kid. And it's like, oh, this is kind of cute in a weird way that like he's just talking to this kid like it's totally normal. Um I will I will throw out a bone uh, in this and say this for Zahir as a villain. You know, Aman is scary because he is exceptional, because he's gifted, mm -hmm. because he has something nobody else has. Right. This thing about Zahir, and I'll give them this, that makes him scary is the opposite, that he could be anybody, look virtually like anyone, he, the guy did this guy didn't even have airbending before he wasn't special right. he was the most ordinary person who got a hold of a wild thought and ultimately even though this man will never change the world he will cause an awful lot of pain and destruction in a what is what makes it even more tragic and scary is an ultimately fruitless crusade that he goes on thinking that his actions in a deluded sense are going to impact change right and are justified and justified yeah yeah and that's what's sad that's the scary thing yeah that's the scary thing and that's honestly that's a little too real because that's how so many crazy people nowadays like yep. they truly believe that by doing these crazy things by going on these rampages by causing mass violence that they are somehow like perpetuating their ideals and like their perfect they're putting world. a message out there they're not yeah and it it's not no it's ridiculous and crazy and like no. stupid. and in the um, end all we remember is the tragedy but the, the whatever message they thought they were sending nobody remembers it nobody cares like it's right. it's fruitless you know exactly it, it's it's a waste of time there's way more 
productive productive paths to take because that ultimately like do you think they'll be remembered that they won't be you know yeah exactly you know (laughs) so this this episode is is a major one and i can see why the imdb rating is so good it's intense like you said they pack a lot into it it's got humor with bolin it's got intrigue with the white lotus and it's got some adventure with uh asami the underused character and cora um this episode is a it's a good 8.5 for me interesting um, I think I'm going to agree with IMDb. I don't think that this is quite a nine for the reasons that I listed. Oh, excuse me. But I do think that it is uh, worthy of the 8.9 rating that IMDb gave it. Um, I really do think that this was like, this was just historic in terms of just animation in general for Nickelodeon. Like, yeah. just you know, what we were shown on screen was we had never seen anything like that before on Nickelodeon. Nothing that dark um, and not from... You know, obviously there's been dark stuff before, but this was like a whole nother level, like I said. And mm-hmm. just for that reason alone, you know, it has my respect. They were willing to go there and they mm-hmm. only get, it only gets darker from here for the rest of the season. <laughs> so Good. I'm like, yes, I love it. Well, um, and you, and you know, you know, this is on that note that we talk about the remainder of the season, looking ahead to what we've got going on. Uh, we have a very special episode coming up because it turns mm-hmm. out uh that this season of legend of Korra has 13 episodes well we're we are ill content folks to settle for handling these uh with one episode per podcast and then two uh the triple threat has arrived and we will be handling and speaking about the next three episodes that finish off season three of legend of Korra in our next episode so oh yeah yeah be sure to tune in for that it's gonna be quite a ride the fast track to the end of season three everyone that's all for today to all of our listeners thank you so much for tuning in we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode so feel free to leave a review or comment follow the podcast give us a good rating and all that good stuff you can find us on twitter at millwood and micah and please follow our instagram at millwood and micah podcast thanks again and we'll be back in the next episode